Searching for Canada's best startups. The Pitch Please Podcast. Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Give us your best pitch. Pitch please. Three, two, one. Connecting with Canada's startups to learn about their business and the amazing people behind them. Follow along and hear some of the most interesting ideas in startups from across Canada. Welcome back, everybody, to the Pitch Please podcast. It's Mike Thibodeau, your host here today. And we're going to be speaking with Amir from Lexop. Welcome to the show, Amir. Why don't we start with a quick introduction about your role at Lexop and let's learn a little bit about you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. Uh, my name is Amir. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Lexop, a fintech company based out of Montreal. Very nice. And so let's talk a bit about how you got to be the head honcho of this company out of Montreal called Lexop. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background, where you started. You said you've been in Montreal your entire life. And so let's talk about that time, some of the experiences you've had, maybe other places you've worked and how that's shaped your journey to where you are today. Sure, of course. I'm a lawyer by profession, so sorry, nobody's perfect. You've got to watch what I'm going to say then for the rest of the <laughs> <Yeah>. podcast. <laughs> so I practiced banking and, and bankruptcy law for about eight years, and then started Lexop with my co-founder, Michelle. And the idea was that in our early days of entrepreneurship, we were late on a lot of invoices. Just finances was terrible. And that's where we became past due customers ourselves. And that's where we experienced firsthand what it means to be past due. And it was, it's a terrible experience being in collections, right? It's very old school. You kind of, it's rigid, it's antagonizing. And people call you during supper time or you get letters at home that says you're late to last call. And that's where we kind of clicked and we said, you know what, we should be able to improve this collection experience in today's age. There's so much we can do using technology. And the whole reason behind Lexop is that collection tactics hasn't changed. They haven't changed in like a hundred years, but consumers have changed a lot, right? Consumers are a lot more digital. People don't even answer phone calls anymore, right? So everything has to be done on the phone, very easy, self-serve. And that's the whole mission behind Lexop is that we're trying to make collections a self-serve experience, right? And to remove the taboo of being in collection. In a few words, that's the whole gist behind it. So I want to go back because like we just <laughs> jumped so far ahead. Talk to me about your journey of becoming a lawyer. Was that your initial life purpose? Like you wanted to go into law, you clearly studied law. It sounds like you're practicing law for a bit. Maybe even just what inspired you to go into law and what type of law were you doing? Yeah, so I never dreamed of becoming a lawyer. It was just something I did because my Persian father insisted on it. <laughs> but no, initially I wanted to be an actor after college. I did a little bit of theater, played in a few very small roles and I wanted to go into LA before university and do auditions for a year. And then my dad kind of did the reverse mindset and he said, you know what? Go ahead and just do your bachelor's, become a lawyer. And after that, I'll pay one year of fees, whatever you have in LA for your auditions. And then I'm like, okay, you know, it's a good deal. And, but then life takes you somewhere else. And I became a lawyer and I practiced to forget about the certain passions. And when you go deep into a certain subject and then that's it. I did law for about eight years. Uh, also in Montreal, I studied my civil law, my common law and practiced for about eight years at law firms and then a national bank of Canada. So I did almost always. Banking and a little bit of bankruptcy. That was the subject. 
Okay, interesting. So I see how maybe some of that even tied into your knowledge around oh, yeah. the financial aspects. Absolutely. It's helping me a lot with Lexop, yes. And I, I have to go back. So you wanted to be an actor. <laughs> and so that was an initial early dream. What drew you to acting? What, what type of acting did you want to do? What did you envision for yourself? Nothing specific. I mean, I've always liked movies since I was a kid. I'm a bit of a blast cloud. I had always had good grades, but always was an entertainer and with family events. And I was a class clown at school too. And it was, I guess it was just a passion. I was always very fascinated by the movie scene and I wanted to do movies, right? Movies or TV shows. Back then, TV shows were less popular than movies. So movies was the things. Yeah, now everything's a mini series. You have to watch at least three to six episodes of something. That's you can't right. just watch a single movie for an hour and a half. So is there a type of movie that you like envisioned being it? No, nothing specific, but I like comedies a lot. So it's like Wedding Crashers and stuff like that. That's the kind of humor that I like. Yeah, yeah. That's hilarious. So you want to be like someone that could uplift people's spirits by bringing some comedy to movies. Yep. It's funny, maybe you'll still be able to do that. There's some elements of being a founder that isn't acting, but there is this element of performance and charisma that you need. Mm -hmm. So maybe you're going to get to live it out and bring that dream to something you're doing now still. It's pretty cool. So then you went, <laughs> yeah, not too late. You can still be an actor. I'm sure you can still do it like on the side if you find some time. I, I don't think anyone's going to stop you. But then you said you went to law school, you started going down that path, and then things changed. Now... You were practicing law for eight years. I'm sure that was extremely riveting. I'm being sarcastic. <laughs> I'm joking. Lawyers have a very strong purpose in the things we do. I just couldn't do it. But you were working in the law space. What was like the moment? I guess as you were a lawyer, did you ever think you'd be an entrepreneur, like an entrepreneur or start a company? I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I always had that in, in me, like this curiosity. But not in the early days of being a lawyer and practicing, it was, that was the main focus, right? You had to work so hard and pay your dues. So that kind of desire was pushed down. It was on a back burner. And then as I became more and more of a senior lawyer, and I was starting like to be more comfortable at what I do. I started exploring a little bit of my other passions. And this entrepreneurship was something that I wanted to dig deeper into. Interesting. What inspired you in life? or made you want to become an entrepreneur? Was there some moment, some person, something you reflect on that made you want to be that? There's something in your personality that you knew mm -hmm. that would always be true one day, you just didn't know when or for what? Tell me about that experience of how you realized you wanted to be an entrepreneur. I guess I always wanted to create something and have a team. It's not a question of ego thing. I always wanted to create something and solve a problem using tech. I always been fascinated by tech. My dad is an engineer himself, a network engineer. So tech was always a subject. He has his own consultancy company, so like mini entrepreneur. So I got inspired by that. But ultimately also, I, I wanted to have an impact, do something that actually affects a lot of people in a good way. And in a way also, like I always read so much, all the stories of Silicon Valley, of these big solutions that came in, helped people. And then there was exits. There was also, and these founders became multimillionaires. And I'm like, you know what? I want to be a multimillionaire too. This is the only way I can, because I was four years old when we immigrated to Montreal. So I grew up poor. So the idea of having a big exit was always something that was, I was very curious about. That's cool. And I think it's special because I think when you reflect on the types, there's like a lot of 
variations of entrepreneurship, right? There's people that build. I talked about it on one of my previous podcasts with Matthew Lombardi from 111. We were talking about funding and VCs and when VCs do and don't get involved versus when you take money from a bank. I think he used the term like cottage startups or cottage businesses, which is like these exits that are like $10 million, which is a massive amount of money, but they're not the type of exits that are like VC worthy. They're very uh-huh. good. They will get you your house, your cottage, your car, a very relaxing lifestyle, more money than probably most people need, but they're different. And the pursuit of those is also different. And the founders that go for those versus the, what it would take and the dreams and the vision of what you need to do to become like that Silicon Valley, the next massive global changing type company is different. So it's cool that you like part of your journey to this actually was grounded in the inspiration of that and the desire even from like immigrating here you said four years old and then the dreams Um, and it's really cool to see where people's dreams take them there's another set of founders co-founders brother and sister the brother had this book of dreams when he was younger and they used to discuss them that one day so it's cool and i think it's inspiring to see some people trip on the problem some people dream of that opportunity and it's cool that you got here we're gonna do in a second, I'd like to get your pitch on Lexop. But before we do that, I wanted to understand a little bit about what inspired that. You said something earlier about you saw a problem where you were running into. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I kind of want to understand the trigger. The trigger where you said, this is it. That's the thing I was dreaming about. Here's the moment. So we'll talk about what Lexop is. I'm going to want to get your pitch. But I want to know, what was that trigger for you? Sure, absolutely. And it's funny, you mentioned the cottage kind of situation about startups. When we started Lexop as like an incorporation, the name, this was seven years ago and it was a legal tech. So it was a software communication platform that we had built for lawyers. Initially, that was the product. And then we worked on it for about three years and it was making good money. Ultimately, we sold it, but we kept the name that we just sold the business. And we took that money and we reinvested it in what we are today, which is a fintech in collections. And the reason behind it is exactly that cottage scenario you said. We noticed that the legal tech product was growing, but it was becoming a lifestyle business, right? Not a VC play. And that's what we wanted. We were assessed by that VC play. We wanted that big exit. We wanted, I don't know if it's good or bad. Maybe we should have exited and just went our way by a car in the cottage. But no, we wanted that big, big impact and big exit. So we sold the legal product and we invested in the collection. The reason we invested in collection is because in our early days as entrepreneurs, that was the problem we faced, both of us. We were already doing the legal tech solution, but we were tight on money. It was difficult. I almost lost my house twice. It was really tough until it got better. And during that tough time, we used to talk about, me and my co-founder, about how it's terrible being in collection. Why? Why hasn't that changed in 80 years? Why is it so old school? If I have to make a payment agreement, I have to call someone and be on the phone for an hour. Can I not just do it on the phone or can I not just make a payment agreement? Can they be more empathetic with me? Um, And there's also that mentality of debt. When you're past due, you don't even feel like talking to anyone, right? It's a bit embarrassing. So that's where all that talk came back and we said, you know what? We believe in this. We believe collection is another hot topic. And another reason why click and we said, this is the right call is we did two big accelerators as a startup. 
One of them was called Founder Fuel. That was in 2017. That was in Montreal. And then in 2018, we did one of the biggest accelerators in the world called 500 Startups in San Francisco. So we went there, we lived there. And the purpose is to accelerate ideas, right? Accelerate go-to-market. So they test, you learn a lot. And during that time, we met a mentor. We were talking about this idea that we had moving away from legal tech. And he said, in this economy, collection is going to be a very hot topic. And it's also a taboo subject, so it hasn't been innovated much. When we started Lexop in collections and improving collections, we were basically like three or four competitors in the market. Now it's about eight, but still it's not that much. Collection isn't something that it's people have pushed to innovate. And that's, that was how kind of the trigger. Somebody that we respected a lot told us that collection is going to be a hot topic. We experienced it also. And what we did was we created a minimum viable product. We had a contact, a friend of mine who worked as a executive vice president at a big telco here in Montreal called Videotron. And we went, we pitched, we're like, if we build this, is this something that would help your collection process? And they said, yeah, definitely. So we spent two years building it with them and they were our early adopter. And we launched in 2019. That's what that product was ours and we replicated it and we sold it to other big enterprise companies and they like validated. That was how it started. That's cool. What I love about what you're saying is that for some founders, like that moment was like one moment. But I think what you're also alluding to is that moment of inspiration isn't always like a day in your life. Mm -hmm. Like it sounds like it happened over a period of time. There is these experiences that you were experiencing with your first startup where you were on the other end of collections conversations and not because you're a bad person. Like things are tough or time is a, a challenge. Like sometimes you just can't keep up with all the things coming at you. And you were experiencing like these emotions that you're like, I don't want to feel like this. I don't want to feel like I'm letting people down. And so I'm shutting down. I'm just like, it's so overwhelming and it's so much. And it gives me like this reaction. And then simultaneously, maybe on a different timeline, you had a mentor or respected person in your life talking about elements Mm -hmm. of this. And then you had some collisions with some companies that may also have this problem. And so on different timelines, these things evolve. Like sometimes people think like a startup started this one day in the backyard while having some beers with my buddy, while working on my barbecue, having a great cook-off and damn it, there's never a good grill cleaner and boom, the idea was born. But it's not always like that. Sometimes it's like a journey of things that just keep coming back in your mind and planting these seeds and fester and then you have to do it. And it sounds like that's how it came to life for Lexup, if I'm understanding. Yeah, exactly. It was just a series of events that kind of crystallized into, okay, you know what? This is worth it that for us to dig into this and go all in. That's cool. Again, I still want to hear your pitch, but one thing, I mentioned accelerators. For any other about-to-be founders or current founders, can you tell me a little bit? It sounds like that was very impactful for you. Would you highly recommend joining an accelerator? Is an accelerator for everyone? Are there guardrails where you're like, listen, if this is what you're trying to do, accelerator, but it's not for everyone. There's pros and cons. Talk to me a little bit about that. We don't have to talk about these specific accelerators. If you can, yeah, I'd love to like, share some of that with founders because maybe they're just like working on what they're working on. And the only thing they think about is, can I get funding? And they blinders onto all these other elements that aren't always funding. I think it's absolutely worth it. 
especially if you come from a background that you don't know much about startups and fundraising, you don't come from that world. I wasn't there, my co-founder either. So we didn't even know what the word startup was. We didn't even know what scale-up was. So we didn't, we didn't know what benchmarks were. So that was really two great experiences of our lives. The first one that we did, Founder Fuel, was in Montreal. It was fantastic because it taught us the, the fundamentals and what it is, what to expect from the market. Often you think about these success stories, these overnight success stories, but you learn in these accelerators, like, you know, a, a software business, typically it takes six to 10 years before it does an exit. If you look at all these stories of, of Twitter, Airbnb pivoted four times before they became what they are today, right? Jack Dorsey from Twitter once wrote, I'm an overnight success story that took 10 years, right? So these stories take time and that's a very good to learn to know these because it sets expectations, right? It makes you more resilient. And if you have a multiple little, you know, failures or miss, because you will, you will have multiple failures and if obstacles and things are not going your way. But at least if you know that this is not a one-year story, this is supposed to take seven to 10 years, you become more resilient. So that was the first thing we learned when we did a founder fuel. I think the main thing. And also you learn how to pitch, right? Pitching is very important. And one of the things um, uh, when we were there, we learned is uh, one of the partners at Founder Fuel said, if I ask you, what do you do? Please resist the urge of answering. And we're all like, what do you mean? He said, bring the person where you want to go. And what that means is that if you ask me, hey, what's Lexop? Typical answer would be, well, Lexop is a financial technology company. So I won't tell you what the secret is, but it's about bringing the journey. But it's about the journey, right? If somebody asks, what do you do? He doesn't really care about exactly what you do. It's like, what, what really matters? How does that impact me? That's the real question, right? And you have to them if you want that pitch to resonate, right? Well, you'll see it in a few seconds. And then when we did 500 startups, that was in San Francisco. That was fantastic because... That was kind of the big leagues. That's where we met a, a lot of connections and network. Again, I come from you know, immigrant family, four years old, grew up poor, didn't have a lot of contacts in the startup world or Silicon Valley or San Francisco. But that allowed us to build that network, meet a lot of important people who are still helping us today and being mentors of ours this is many years later. But I, I absolutely recommend it. But the only thing is that when you do accelerators, you kind of have to still operate your company and do the accelerator. So it's tough, very tough. And oftentimes during these programs, they ask you to test things, test different marketing channels, test different scenarios and sales processes. What that does is that you burn through cash, right? So you have, before doing an accelerator, I always recommend to you know, other CEOs that I talk to, Make sure you have enough runway to cover that period of time where you have to spend a little bit more. You have to burn a little bit more money. That, I think that's really good coaching and guidance. And I think the, the other piece that you mentioned there, like you're doing, you're running and operating your business and you're in an accelerator. You're not a business for the accelerator. And so you no. do have to remember to wear those two yeah. hats. You have to live the every day of your company and drive the every day of your company. And you need to take the advice and things you're doing with the accelerator. You shouldn't just do what the accelerator tells you and that's where you stop. You do need to be doing both. And, and I really like the guidance yeah. around cash and holy shit, do I feel vulnerable now because I'm worried that now I'm going to have to learn a new form of pitching. But you know what? This whole show is about it. 
And so, <laughs> Amir, let's do this. Your pitch, please. So let me ask you this. Have you ever been in collections, Mike? Have you ever missed an invoice in your life? I've definitely had an experience multiple where, you know, I, I'm a huge fan now of auto bill, but where you can't auto bill in parts of your life. I'm like, you know, oh, that stack of mail, the electricity bill, the hydro bill. And it's not because like, I don't want to pay it. It's just, it's in a pile there. It, I thought I paid this month, but it was actually last month. Like you just, there's so many things in life. And so I definitely can relate. And I can also relate to the feeling when I get that text message or I see like <laughs> Rogers called me. I'm like, oh, I forgot this thing. So yeah, I've, I've been there. I think a lot of people have been there and I've probably been there way more than I'm willing to admit when I was back in university. And that's what we're trying to do at Lexa. We're trying to make sure that you never feel that way again, even if you're late next time. We're trying to remove the embarrassment of collections by using technology. We're trying to make it more humane by using technology, right? We created a software that we sell to big companies so that they can improve their collection approach with their consumers, right? It's about making it empathetic, flexible, self-serve, and you can make a payment agreement in less than three minutes on your phone without having to talk to anyone. So that's what Lexop is. We're providing better payment and collection solutions to the world. Sounds super helpful. And I can see where and how I would feel better about the way that I get approached sometimes. So maybe we start with who's using it. So you said large companies. Yep. And maybe define that, like who's the smallest person that could take advantage of Lexop to the largest organization in your vision? And then also who's kind of using it today? It'd be good to learn a little bit about that. Sure. So we mainly target companies, enterprises, and, and industries that have a lot of account receivable volume, right? If you don't have enough volume, Lexop is not for you. If you only have 100 of past due accounts per month, Go use QuickBooks. Lexop is not for you. But if you're a big telco with millions of customers, if you're a bank with a lot of products out there where people are passed through on their payments, like credit card payments, auto loan payments, credit line payments, student loan payments. And if you're, for example, a utility, like a water, electricity, gas provider that has a lot of customers and they can be late on their invoices, that's our target. So financial institutions, telcos, and utilities. However, our bread and butter, what we really focus on is financial institutions, so banks, credit unions, auto lenders. We work with, we don't, Volkswagen is one of our clients. Fairstone Financial is one of our clients. We have some water and then a utility provider called Hydro Solution, one of the biggest ones in the province. It's one of our clients. There's other couple of other financial institutions that are our clients, but we're on their NDA, so I can't really name them, but that's our target. That's totally fine. That, that makes a lot of sense. And so you are a B2B solution. B2B SaaS. But the scenarios you're talking about, is Lexop generally for companies that have B2C collections yeah. or does B2B work as well? Or you're agnostic, but obviously B2C has a higher volume. Exactly. So that's why you've kind of used it. Is it for both? It's for both, it. but we target um, in terms of go-to-market approach and focus and what we spend is to target B2C companies. So we're kind of like B to B to C in terms of value uh, creation. That makes sense. So teach me about this industry a little bit. Earlier in the show, you talked about there's very few companies innovating mm -hmm. collections. Maybe talk about how 
collections are generally handled. How busy is this space? And then we can kind of go from there. And, you know, you've mentioned some of the people and companies that use it. So when we talk about how Lexop does it differently, it'll make a lot of sense for people. Definitely. So let's say you're a financial institution and you have a hundred thousand people who are past due in a given month. Usually what happens is that those accounts will go through different delinquency buckets. So you have up to 30 days past due, up to 60 days past due, 90 days past due. And then usually after 90, that's where they write it off to collection agency. So if you look at your credit score on TransUnion or Equifax, or if you're late on a few invoices, there's a code there. You'll see like R1 is like I was late on one payment and up to 30 days. It says three zero. Or like R2, two payments in 60 days. So it always works like that, even with credit scoring agencies, 30, 60, 90, and then you kind of write it off. Most companies, in fact, all of our clients, they used to send regular mail or email that didn't really convert. They used to send mail at home that doesn't convert at all. People are not responsive to letter mail. People used to make robocall that doesn't convert either. And that's where we came in. We believe at Lexop to use only digital channels, SMS or email, or even WhatsApp for South America to catch the person's attention. Because rule number one of collections is to catch the person's attention. And if you don't do it at the right time, with the right tone, with the right message, you will not convert Mike into a paying customer, right? So that's what we do at Lexop. We have hyper-targeted, personalized message. We have a lot of data on demographics. I know what's the right message to send to Mike based on his demographics, based on how many days he's late to convert, right? It's not a perfect science, but we're perfecting it every day. So if somebody is five days past due, they should never receive the same message that somebody that's 55 days past due, right? Very different approach, very different tone. And for the past seven years, that's the problems with collection is that they would put everybody in the same bucket. Everybody was treated the same, which is horrible. We believe that that's not supposed to be the case, right? You can tailor your message, be a bit more firm on your messaging when somebody like 70 days past due, but you should st still customer, right? They should be treated well. And nowadays, human interaction has become an obstacle to certain things like payments. People don't want to deal with people when it comes to payments. They want to do it on their phone. That's it. That's the whole premise behind it. And that's how usually collections work. Got it. So, so I'm going to want to learn a little bit more how it works. Initially, when we started and you told me collections, I was like, this guy looks like he works out. I think I know how they're getting the money back. You show up <laughs> at my door, you start knocking, I'm going to give you money, whatever you say. But it sounds like it's a different way and there's a lot more empathy to it. So you were saying that there's like this element of like digital, highly customizable, targeted with empathy. Maybe talk me through a little bit about what that looks like. So if I'm a company, I load up these people, I have parameters, and then I start to customize the messages that go out. Tell me a little bit about how that works. Tell me a little bit about what those messages sound like. And then it sounds like, I think you mentioned at the end, you find a way to make path to payment really simple and streamlined. Tell me about how that works a little bit. You should work on Lexop, Mike. Don't give away all your secrets, but you pitch it pretty well. <laughs> I get so invested in the startups that come on this show. It's dangerous. It's dangerous. 
So essentially how it works is that, so we're a SaaS platform, so cloud-based. Let's say we sell to a bank and they license our software. They use it internally, so they operate it. It's not like we operate a software for our clients. We're purely a technology company, right? But we sell the technology, they implement it. And then let's say in a given month or every week, they send out their collection campaigns there. Their CRM indicates, oh, here are the 50,000 people who are late. They load up that information into Lexile and then they shoot down some settings to say, all right, so for the people who are 30 days past due, we're going to send this message. And so you target your messaging, you create workflows, and it's all automated in Lexop, and then you launch your campaigns and it's all set. Then you might, you get your, your message, whether it's SMS or email, it says, you know, it's completely white labeled. You don't see Lexop anywhere. It's important. Otherwise you'll think it's phishing. You don't have any relationship with Lexop. You have a relationship with your bank. Yeah, it's exactly what I was thinking. So it's fully white label experience. And it says, dear Mike, we noticed that you're late. But don't worry, just click on resolve and find the solution. So right away on your phone, without having to log in into another portal, without having to calling in, you just click on resolve and you go into this nice portal where you can pay in full, you can make a minimum payment, you can make a payment arrangement. And then once you've chosen that kind of flexibility, you have a lot of options of payments. You can pay with credit card, you can pay with Visa debit, you can link any bank account that you have in Canada or in the United States into it just by putting your online credentials. Then one of the problems of classic collection problem is that let's say you're a bank, you only have access to the bank account that is linked at the moment. You can only take money for the money has already been initially is. But what if I change my bank account and my salary now, my payroll is deposited into another bank, HSBC, let's say. I want to link my HSBC account now. So Lexop does allows you to do that. Link multiple accounts anywhere they are in just a few clicks. So once you've chosen your flexibility, you've chosen where the source of the funds are, you click on confirm, done. You just made a payment agreement in less than two minutes on the comfort of your home without having to talk to anyone. So that's the consumer journey. That's amazing. And then on the other hand, our clients, let's say the bank, for example, has access to the Lexop software dashboard where you have all your analytics, where you see money coming in, you track who paid, who didn't pay. You know exactly how many people you know, clicked on payment but didn't pay, something happened so you can be proactive. So there's a lot of data, a lot of interaction data that you can use to make your collection campaigns better, to polish them as you go forward. The more they use Lexop, the better they know how to interact with their customers because there's more data on it. One quick question, Amir, does this plug back into their systems Yeah. so that they don't have to like, it's not just a separate dashboard. Like I imagine if I made a payment, Lexop's platform knows I made a payment. I assume that feeds back into their systems near real time. Yeah. Maybe, sorry to interrupt you, but are there integrations that I don't know this space well, but if you're a listener listening and thinking about collections, are there integrations that this already just does for you to help streamline that so you don't text message or email me like five times after I've made the payment? Because I know that happens with companies so often, right? I'm like, I just friggin' paid you. Absolutely. And, And that is a real concern. And there's two ways to reconcile information so that, you know, you can make sure that your system is always updated. One way that we do it is the, what we call the manual way, kind of easy, is 
at the end of the day, Lexop always sends a daily report to the customer. It's just an Excel sheet with everything that has happened during the day. So they take that Excel sheet and just update it in their CRM. Everything's updated. But we also have a full suite of APIs. So we can connect the plumbing and be connected directly into the client's system and have that bi-directional real-time feed. Both ways are good. Just one of them is a little bit easier in terms of faster, I would say, in terms of updating the system. However, it takes a little bit of work. But most of our clients, in fact, all of them started the Excel sheet or import sheet way. And then ultimately when they saw the results of Legshop, then the ROI is incredible. They're like, okay, I'm here. Let's connect the plumbing and go with the, via the API routes. Amazing. I know that's like a huge piece. I can totally see why they would do that. It's like pilot, it works. Oh my gosh. Can we just make this a faster streamline? All right, continue on. I know you were, you were talking about some stuff. Let's, let's keep going. That was the main thing. I was to finish with the dashboard, right? When the user journey is done and they pay, the dashboard allows our clients to track everything. And what it does is that by offering a flexible and digital journey, you also create brand loyalty. So let's say you're past due, Mike, and you get this little nice message that says, don't worry, and allows you to resolve your account on your own. You're like, man, that was nice. All right, I'm, I'm happy with X Bank. They're good people. So I create that brand loyalty as well. And they're very valuable. Well, and I think that's the funny part because sometimes I'm always busy, whether I'm spending some time doing podcasts with amazing founders and Canadian startups, or I'm working my job, or I've got family commitments, things pile up. It's not because I don't have the ability to go make a payment. Like it's some other factor. Now that could happen in some cases, but like, I feel like a criminal every time because something slipped my mind. Things slip my mind all the time, not just collections. I'm like, oh, I forgot <laughs> this item at the grocery store. I went there to buy groceries and I forgot the number one item on my damn list. So like we're busy people in life and sometimes we forget things, but yes. it wasn't intentional. And so when Absolutely. messages come and make it seem like it was intentional, I'm like, whoa, like, whoa, slow down. Like I get it, <laughs> Rogers you need your $95 this month. Like, that's not a problem. I'll give you your $95. I just literally just forgot to pay that because I just did it like at the tail end of last month. And I'm trying to calculate like real time when's 30 days because it's e-billing and I get 700 emails. Like that's life. So I can totally see how a different approach yeah. would make me feel a little bit different with brands. Sorry, Rogers. Like maybe I guess you need to talk to Lexop. I keep <laughs> referencing examples that I've got happening in my life. And I don't mean to throw any brand under the bus. So I'm sorry. Yeah. I've been trying to reach out to them for a while. They're not taking my call. I've been trying to reach out to Rogers for a while. They're not taking my call. You know, we do a lot of research on consumer behavior and 60% of the time when people are past due is not because they're absolute delinquents. It's not even for financial reasons. It's because either they forgot they were on vacation. And that's where we come in. Alexa, we're soft collections, right? We're early collections. One day past due, up until 40 days past due. That's where, you know, the low hanging use technology to automate those people. And then for people who are more than 50 days past due, that deserves a human, an agent. But before that, that bucket of people don't deserve to be harassed. Allow them to self-serve. And that's the whole mission. That's what the focus is. Early collections deserves a different approach. I love it. A couple questions. I was talking with your team recently and full disclosure, I work for Microsoft, Lexops on our platform. 
They're also in the marketplace. So if you're looking mm -hmm. to procure, you can procure them directly or go to the Azure marketplace, which could make your procurement simpler. Shoutouts. As you think <laughs> about this, and by the way, I'm so passionate about this. I've been talking to people recently about this, but like when you think of the ecosystem, what I love about my job at Microsoft is, you know, you were joking like, oh, you should come work at Lexop. I love that I get to talk at my job and through this podcast to the wide variety of people solving so many problems. Like that variety gives me so much energy to see all of the things, problems I knew about, problems I didn't know about. And the thing I get even more <clears throat> passionate about is companies that have these problems, not always trying to solve it themselves if it's not their core competency. So I'm very passionate about seeing those collisions exactly. happen. So in that, if you need to solve how you're approaching collections, you should talk to LexApp. We'll make sure all their stuff's linked. But Amir, tell me like where or how you make money. Is it based on volume of collections? Is it like a single priced service? How does that kind of work if some client is looking to purchase and implement LexApp? So it's very much subscription-based SaaS. It's, it's a yearly license or monthly, it's yearly usually. And it's based on the number of accounts that you want to treat per month. That's it. It's very, very simple pricing, very predictable. So somebody that has 10,000 accounts per month, that's the, what the volume they want to go through treats per via Lexop is going to be different than somebody that has 100,000 accounts. Obviously the 100,000 accounts will be a bigger subscription, but the unit economics will be less. You'll pay less per account per month, the more you have volume. So typically it's like between $3 per account per month, it could go as low as 70 cents per account per month, depending on the kind of volume that you have. Awesome. And you know what? That's probably like a really good way to frame it because like people are probably wondering whenever we talk to collections and maybe these are the ones past 90 days, but they're like, they take 20% of whatever they recover. Maybe it was like, we'll take five or 10% of everything you're sending out and we scoop through the app. But it sounds like you've made it very simple. It's based on the volume of users that you're using this for and customers, the B2C accounts. So you've made a very simple, predictable SaaS model. Let's talk about your team. So as you've gotten through this, you know, you've said you've been in business a while, lots of customers, amazing names that you've mentioned, some you couldn't mention that are using the product. This is your second startup that you're going through the journey on. What are like some of the most memorable moments of Lexop for you? Things that stand out in your journey that you think you'd love to share? One of the most memorable moments, a couple, but I would say the first one in terms of timeline was when we had the legal tech product, the first check we got was a hundred from a client, from a law firm, $136. And we were ecstatic. We were the happiest. We spent double that celebrating that $136, right? On beer. And we were so happy. I'll never forget the rest of my life, that $136 check. It was like, hey, somebody's willing to pay for this, to pay for our product, right? It was such a validating moment. And then fast forward, like two months ago, we signed a huge, like a million dollar contract over five years and everything. And we kind of looked back, me and my co-founder were like, remember that $136? Well, now we're like doing a million dollar contract. It's kind of cool, you know, good progress. We're okay. We're okay. So that was one moment. The other moment was like the first pitch day that we did at the end of every accelerator was something called demo day. You demo, you pitch your product. And the first one that we did at Founders Show was this big demo. It's been of hundreds of people. 
where you have practiced your pitch for weeks and weeks and you pitch it and it's five minutes only. And then people stood up and clapped and they loved the idea. I would say that was another moment that was fantastic. And I would say the first time, I still get that. Every time I go to the office and the elevator opens and I see like soft, it's on the wall right in front of the elevator, I still get butterflies. Every time. And that's a great feeling. That's so special. I love the contrast to all three of those things, but I can see how they're memorable. Like that validation, that $136 check. It's not about the amount on that check. It's about the fact that you are building something from this desire to change the world and impact people. And now you've started. You have people that have validated the impact that you wish to drive is meaningful. And I think the contrast to that first million dollar contract or one of the million dollar contracts, and I'm sure there will be many, many, many more that just shows like the journey you've been on. And I think that you can contrast a million to 136 shows the progress and then it validates the time and energy you and the team behind you have been putting in. And it doesn't surprise me that you love that pitch. Like you said, you want to be an <laughs> actor. So I think you're starting to, you know, those pitch days and those demo days, you're getting that actor life out of you. Yeah, it's true. There's this little bit of performance to it. Right. And then I'm picturing that elevator opening, like the way you describe Boy. it is just like so vivid. Like you come and the elevator doors open and you have this moment of pride of this thing you've been building. And then you take some steps towards that sign and you start to see the people and the energy in the office that you have created. The chaos, it's beautiful. And those people <laughs> are contributing to creating. It's right so special. With everything of amazing stories, is there like a challenging story that sticks out in your mind? Because you know, I think some podcasts talk about all the amazing things, the first million dollars. <laughs> but I think it's like you said this multiple times, like even in your first startup, like there's lows. Oh, yeah. And if you are not ready and prepared for the lows, and if you're not ready to be like overnight success actually takes 10 years. If you're not ready for that, like someone needs to sit you down and yes. have the real conversation before you make this jump to entrepreneurship. And so I'd love to hear some of those raw stories that you think people should, you know, reflect on or know about for themselves of some of maybe the challenges or hardships? I would say two things. As a CEO, there's three main things you do, right? You establish a vision, you build a great team, and you make sure there's money in the bank. Most of the times, it's the third one. Making sure money is in the bank is what's going to keep you up at night, right? It's cash management and making sure that you can hit payroll. That is so hard, especially at the beginning when you're Still trying to find that product market fit, making sure that you have predictable business coming in and revenue coming in. You know, so many times I have, me and my co-founder, we've cut out our salaries for like a year. We were on unemployment technically so that we could at least pay our employees. There's a lot of moments like that. I almost lost my house twice just because I couldn't pay the municipal taxes. So there's a lot of moments like that. And I'm certainly not the only startup to say that because I have a lot of other CEO friends who have startups and they all go through the same hustle. So that's one of them, the cash management. You will go through difficult times until you find your niche and your replicable business coming in. The other one is the team is very important, right? The hustle. I have, you know, the expression, hire slowly, fire fast. So I'm very proud that we have a truly exceptional team, top tier talent, truly devoted. And I remember one of them, when we were going through hard, hard times, I went to see every one of the employees and I told them, listen, they know uh, this year, unfortunately, I won't be able to give the bonuses. 
just, you know, we're just going through a little bit of a hard time, but I promise as soon as we raise our next round, everything will be paid cumulatively. And one of the employees, actually a lot of them say the same angle, but one of them says, hey, Amir, don't worry about my bonus. How about you make sure you pay yourself first? And I was like, I felt like crying on that spot. I'm like, Jesus, I have, we, have, we have this kind of quality people around us. This guy doesn't want his bonus. He wants to make sure that I'm paid. So these moments are actually hard, but super memorable too, super touching. And I'm like, and I got whole, I cried. This is one of the worst and best feelings ever. So we go through a lot of, a lot of those. So hiring the right people is hard, but when you do can be extremely valuable and uplifting and the right people can help you navigate very hard times. Man, listening to your journey, your advice. Do you even realize how proud you would make four-year-old you coming to Canada many, 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 (laughs) maybe 10 years ago, you don't look that old, but man, like, (laughs) I hope so. The journey you've been on, (laughs) the impact you've had, I'm sure you make your family and yourself deep down inside so proud. If not, make sure you feel that pride because you deserve it, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll make sure we reference before we close out where people can find out more about Lexop. But before we do that, is there any kind of closing advice? I know you've given so much grateful advice to other people listening or founders. Any closing thoughts that you'd want to tell other entrepreneurs or maybe tell your four-year-old self dreaming of this moment? You know, if I was to talk to myself before I started this entrepreneurship journey, I would tell myself, you know, I mean, don't worry about clients and product and security and all of that. The hardest part, I think, of being an entrepreneur is beyond the cash stuff is, is people management, right? Because you're responsible of people. When you're a small team of three people, you wear different hats. And we used to do that, you know, your salesperson, your security, your customer support, your everything. But as a team grows, people management is such a critical aspect, right? And it's hard, right? Because you have to make sure that they're motivated, everybody's compensated, rewarded, and excited. But that's every day you have to do that. So. The higher you are in the company, the more you have to care about people management. And, and I think this is something that I would tell myself earlier that to focus on that, the people ops and people team and take care of our team. But I wish I did it earlier. No, I knew what I knew now a bit earlier in terms of, because when you manage people well, when you care about them, it really changes everything in the company. Retention is better. A turnover is less. So when you're a SaaS company or a tech company, it's your biggest asset. It's your people. You don't have hardware, you don't have anything. It's just people, people who are creating things with you. So people management is the most important thing going forward. That's, that's great advice. And I'm sure like in the race for features and clients, all these things, and I've talked about this before, but sometimes it, it's not that you don't care about people. It's that maybe you get so busy in the same way, maybe you forget to pay a bill. You get Absolutely. so busy and tied up. Yeah. And driving forward that you forget this moment that it's people that are bringing it to life. It's people that are buying it. It's people that it's impacting. It's people that it uses. And so amazing, amazing advice. Well, I think I read an article not long ago. It says people, product, profit. That's how you should think about your business. Always. Think of your people. They'll take care of it. Think of your customers. That's the people part. They'll build the product, take care of them. And then the product and then the profit will come. Super special. If people want to find out more, where or how should they get a hold of you or Lexop? 
we should probably spell Lexop because I'm sure people are spelling it like five different ways in their head. But like, where should people go, Amir? And we'll link all this too, but where should people go? Yeah, so you have it here, lexop.com. That's where all the information is. And you can reach out to us. We have our support system, the chat on the module. We're always, we're very responsive. So Lexop, lexop.com, lexop.com. Find them in the Azure marketplace as well, either or Amir. Thank you you so much for sharing your story today, for telling us a bit more about your background, your journey, your successes and hardships along the way, and about the amazing work that Lexop is doing to humanize collections in a very powerful way. Thanks again for joining us today. Everybody who listened in, thank you for listening to another episode of Pitch Please, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Have a good one, Amir. Take care, man. Bye. You've been listening to the Pitch Please Podcast. Pitch Please. Pitch Please. (laughs) Hosted by Mike Thibodeau. Tune in for regular episodes and show notes at pitchplease.ca. And make sure to give us a follow on your favorite podcast platform. Pitch Please, a Bluemex podcast, is hosted by Michael Thibodeau and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. For more Pitch Please content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit bluemex.io to join us on Discord.